Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jake. Nice to hear a good English accent. <laughs> I'm going to pray for us. Uh, just a word of warning. Tonight's message is hard. It's hard to preach. I think it's hard to listen to, hard to put into practice. So I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Father, we ask that we would be people who long to be changed. Father, we pray that you would correct us, challenge us, encourage us, comfort us. Uh, we pray as we sit under your word tonight that your spirit would be our teacher. Uh, Lord, send us from this place uh, more like our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that for his name's sake. Amen. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever been called a, a do-gooder. Has anyone called you a do-gooder? Uh, my fear is that we, we've taken this beautiful word like a do-gooder and we, we've turned it into a negative word. To be called a do-gooder today is almost like a derogatory term. Or, She's such a do-gooder. He's such a do-gooder. But, but to be a do-gooder is actually really beautiful, isn't it? To, to be the type of person that takes every opportunity to, to help another person. Uh, to be a person who, who sees someone in need and actually does the right thing. The, to be a person who speaks words of kindness and grace and comfort into another person's life. To be a do-gooder is actually a beautiful thing, isn't it? Uh, one of my heroes of faith is a man called John Wesley. And he was a do-gooder. Uh, he lived in the 1700s. He was a, a preacher, a pastor, an evangelist. And, and here's, his, here's his motto for life. It's on the screen. Do no harm, do good, and stay in love with God. Isn't that brilliant? If I shut up now, you'd have a good sermon. Do no harm, do good, and just stay in love with God. That's a great motto for life. Uh, John Wesley, uh, he discovered grace. Uh, he, he grew up in a, in a Pharisaical, Anglican home where it was rules and rules and rules. It was exhausting. And one day, John Wesley was explaining the gospel to a prisoner who was about to be hanged the next day. And suddenly, he understood that, that this man who was about to be hanged had no opportunities to do good works. And, and he realized that you're not saved by all your good works and your religious deeds, but you're saved by grace. And it's this light bulb moment for John Wesley. He's not saved by his good works, but he is saved for good works. His good works don't save him, but as a saved person, he's called to do good, to do good works. And his whole life was utterly transformed. So John Wesley traveled about 4,000 miles every year and preached 2,000 sermons a year. As a hymn writer, he penned three hymns per week. Christ the Lord is risen today, hark the herald angel sings, love divine or love excelling, extraordinary. Uh, but he was best known as, as a do-gooder. Uh, he was one of the first ministers to establish a food pantry for the homeless and the destitute. He poured hours of his life into to visiting 
prisoners on death row. He sacrificed his time to hang out with the people that the world passed on by. And as he grew in wealth, he chose to live a very frugal life. The more he earned, the more he gave away. The more he earned, he, he didn't buy a bigger house. He, he just used the extra money to do more good works. He was kind. He was caring. He, he was a do-gooder. 25 years ago, I had the privilege of lecturing at Oxford University, and I elected out of the, the John Wesley room at Lincoln College. This is the room where John Wesley lived and did good. Extraordinary man. A do-gooder. Now, friends, why would you not want to be known as a do-gooder? What's wrong with being a do-gooder? William Wilberforce, he was a do-gooder, and he abolished slave trade. George Muller was a do-gooder. He established thousands of orphanages. Andrew, Andrew Browning is a do-gooder. He, he's transformed the lives of, of millions of women in Africa. He's a do-gooder. A man in this church who quietly and humbly every single week goes into North Shore Hospital to visit the sick and, and cooks meals for people. He just quietly does it. He's a do-gooder. It's a beautiful, beautiful word. I want to be a do-gooder. That's the theme of Titus chapter 3. It comes three times in our chapter. Look at it with me. Verse 1, again, it's on the screen. He says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authority, to be obedient, and to be ready to do whatever is good. To be ready. To be prepared. To, to look out for every opportunity, every single day, you, you jump saying, yes, I'm ready to do good. Uh, verse 8, to be careful, to be intentional, to devote yourselves, to commit yourselves to doing whatever is good. Verse 14, to, to learn, to devote themselves to doing what is good, to learn. It doesn't come naturally, you learn it. Uh, and the school of doing good is a school that you never graduate from. So this is the theme of, of Titus chapter 3, doing good, doing good, doing good. This is the good life, that you do no harm, you do good, and you just stay in love with God. So Paul starts in verse 1, remind the people. Remind all Christians. Remind, he said, that, that word is a, a present imperative. He says, keep on reminding them, remind them again and again and again. Remind them. Remind God's people to keep on doing good. Let's be honest, we, we, we need reminding because we've got spiritual amnesia. We, we sit and hear a sermon and we think, oh, that's right, I must do good. And you walk out this door, and I can guarantee tonight you'll have a chance to do good. But before you get home, you've forgotten the sermon. I'm just here to remind you, living a good life means being a do-gooder. But please, 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 Remember, all that flows from grace. I love the title of this series, From Grace Flows Goodness. Please don't hear this sermon and think, I must go and be a good person and God will be pleased with me. From grace, from God's undeserved favor, from God's kindness to you in the person of Jesus, grace has a face. His name was Jesus Christ. And Jesus appeared and he loved you and lavished you with his grace. You're not saved by your good works, but you are saved for your good works. You're saved to do good. You don't work your way to heaven by being good. 
trying to do that is to be like sailing to New Zealand on a homemade paper boat. It will never get you there. But if you know that you're loved, you know that you're saved, you know you're forgiven, you know you're redeemed, you know you're purified, then you are eager, you're ready to do whatever is good. So next time somebody calls you a do-gooder, say thank you very much. Because that's what Jesus calls you to be. So in Titus chapter 3, if you just joined us, it's a beautiful little letter, three chapters. Titus 1 is all about godly leadership in God's church. Chapter 2 is all, all about godly relationships within God's church, how to relate as church. In chapter 3, we expand the horizon out of church into the world. How do we, as forgiven, redeemed people, live in God's world? And the answer is, as do-gooders. So tonight, look at these two very short verses, but they pack a punch, and they're quite confronting. What does it mean to be a do-gooder? Two points. Number one, be a good citizen. Be a good citizen. Verse one, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready to do whatever is good. The rulers there are kings and queens and prime ministers and state premiers and the, the word for authority there is the lower authorities, the things like courts and legal systems and the tax office and the, the police force and the, the law enforcement. So what he's saying here is if you are covered in grace, if you claim to believe in Jesus, the way that you relate to people over you in authority, it really matters. Your attitude towards federal, state, local government, it really matters. Your attitude towards legal systems and law enforcement and police and parking rangers, it really matters. And God says, be subject to them. Obey them. Don't be a rebel. Don't be deceptive. Don't be a fraud. Don't start a revolution. Be known as submissive and obedient. That, that, that's a do-gooder. Uh, the word, therefore, be subject to is actually the word Submit. And we hear that word in church and our heckles are up because we think it's negative. It's not negative. It doesn't mean being oppressed. It doesn't mean unwilling obedience. It doesn't mean you don't have a voice. It's not like that kids game submission where a larger kid sits on a smaller kid and says, submit, submit, submit. The word submit is beautiful. It's, it's, it's a willingness to place yourself under somebody else's authority. It's a willingness to put yourself and respect somebody who's been placed over you. The word obedience in verse 1, it just means obey. Do what you should do and don't do what you shouldn't do. It's pretty simple. And we're called to submit and to be obedient to authorities. So we don't withdraw from the world. We don't create our own Christian courts, thinking that the, the worldly courts are too worldly, we're above the law. We don't rebel, we don't revolt, we don't protest, we're not troublemakers, we're not unnecessarily contentious. We, we place ourselves under the people that God has placed over us. I hope you realize that, that God cares about your attitude towards Anthony Albanese and Dominic Perrottet and 
Felicity Wilson or Zali Stegall, or whoever's going to be appointed in two weeks' time. God cares about how you talk about them and how you respond to them. God cares about your attitude towards traffic offences and car registrations and tax laws. God cares about how you live in this world under the authorities. And verse 1, we're called to be obedient. Obedient. And so, yes, church, speed limits are there to be obeyed. The drink driving limit is there to be obeyed. Taxes are there to be paid honestly, with accuracy. Policies are there to be adhered to. No loopholes, no cutting corners. That is being a good citizen. And when you disobey, it is right that we're punished. It is right to get that speeding fine. It's right to get that parking ticket. It's right to be fined for late tax returns. I was thinking my life would be so much easier if I, if I always obeyed. That's true, isn't it? Yeah, I've been driving down a street 10k over the speed limit and, and you're stressed in case there's a speed camera somewhere or a police car somewhere. If you just drove at the right speed, you would save a lot of stress. Or you parked in a two-hour car spot and after four hours you're stressing and you've got a parking ticket. Well, just stay for two hours in a two-hour limit. Life would be much easier. If we actually lived an upright, honest, obedient life, God would be honored if we did the right thing. Drove at the right speed, paid your bills, parked in the right places, do what you're supposed to do. That's being a good citizen. And there's moments when you disagree with a, a government policy well, most of the time, it's just personal preference. But if you think there's been an injustice, if you think that the, the poor and the needy and the marginalized are being oppressed, well, you've got a voice. Use that wisely. Use that gently. It's extraordinary what change has been made by a Christian voice. You might not know this, but it was Christians who instituted prison reforms. It was Christians who stopped human sacrifice. It was Christians who banned polygamy. It was Christians who granted property rights for women. It was Christians who advanced the compulsory education for children. It was Christians who cared for the orphans and changed immigration policies. We've got a voice. But we're called to, to submit and to obey. We have a word here as an as a Englishman, as a palm. I have to say, I, I do think that Australians are perhaps the most anti-authoritarian people I've ever met. We, we kind of pride ourselves in being anti-establishment. There's so much disrespect. I, I see it in the homes where, where kids have zero respect for their parents, and parents, they kind of treat their kids like they're the best friends, and they're adults, and call me Paul, and there's, there's just no respect anywhere I see it in a workplace where, where Christians talk to their boss or about their boss with such harsh language. It's disrespectful. There's almost this, this entitlement mentality. I see it in church where there's no respect for authority. As church, we, we make a decision as a church that you don't like and you, you mutter under, under your breath, that's a stupid decision, I'm never going to do that. And I see it in the way that we talk about our, our politicians, our, our prime minister, our, our state premier, our local MPs, the, these people who are serving us. And if we don't like their particular party, we, we just attack their character. 
It's everywhere, but we're not called to be of the world. We're called to be different. And please remember that every authority has been established by God. He's the one who's put these people there. Romans 13 verse 1 says this, There's no authority except that which God has established. So God is sovereign. God appoints kings and queens and, and prime ministers and premiers. You might not like them. You might not agree with them. But that was God's choice. Praise God that he knows the outcome of every single election. So when Paul says here in verse 1, be subject to every authority, he's not talking about the authorities that you would like to be in place, but the ones who are in power right now, because they're the ones that God has chosen. And before you start to grumble, remember Titus is not living in the Bible battle Crete. Titus is living under, under corrupt leadership. The early church wasn't living in this Christian bubble. They had despotic rulers like Nero over them who torched Christians and burned them alive. So, so rather than whinging and rather than complaining and rather than putting them down, are you ever thankful for leadership? Do you ever thank God for the people that God has put in place over you who make good laws that protect the right of the most vulnerable, establish laws against rape and domestic violence and honor killings and sex trafficking and assault and murder. Praise God for that. Thank God that we have law enforcement officers who stop anarchy and make this city a, a safe place for us. Thank God for the RBT people every Friday and Saturday night who, who spare the lives of hundreds of people by catching those drunk drivers. Thank God for that. Thank God for the men and women who pour themselves out in this city to, to make Sydney as secure as possible and as just as possible. And I know they're not perfect. Of course they're not perfect. But they're doing their best. Stop praying. Stop praying for politicians, for rulers, for a court system that it would bring justice and it would promote goodness and it would, it would wrong evil. We change government by prayer, not just by protests. So, so two Saturdays' time, we have the privilege of voting. That, that's a privilege, isn't it, in our state election? So vote wisely. You, you've got to live under their rule. I don't think any one party should always get the Christian vote. I don't believe that. Read their policies. What do they stand for? Will they be a party that, that upholds justice, that that promotes goodness, that, that protects the most vulnerable, well, vote for them. Yes, but. We love a good but, don't we? Yes, but, Paul. What about? What about when you live under these despotic rulers like Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un? What about when you're forced to do something which disobeys God? Let's be honest. Let's be honest. That is not us, is it? Yeah, there are Christians around the world who have to, to grapple with that every single day. What about this? But that's not us. On the whole, our, our governments are pretty good. We have freedom to, to proclaim the name of Christ. We have freedom to walk the streets safely. We, we just love to, to, to quibble over the exceptions because perhaps we find the, the plain rule quite confronting. 
that God is asking you to submit and to be obedient. Now, of course, there's exceptions. Of course, Paul is not talking about unconditional, uncritical submission to every demand of every authority. Of course, use your brain. So, so when an authority requires you to do something that God forbids, then of course you say no. And when an authority forbids you to do something that God commands, of course you say no. But that's not our norm. Our norm is that we have good governance. So when can we disobey? Well, there's a few areas. There's, there's the moral areas. So remember in Exodus chapter 1 when the Pharaoh commanded the Hebrew midwives to, to kill all those babies. Now, if our government ever said to us that they wanted to, to control population growth by aborting babies, we'd, we'd say no to that, wouldn't we? Of course you would. There's idolatry issues. I remember Daniel, was, he, was, he was forbidden from praying, and he said, no, I'm going to keep praying. So if, if our government ever forbid us from meeting together and praying, we'd say no to that. If our government ever demanded that we have an Islamic preacher every second week, of course we'd say no to that. There are abuse issues. Sadly, many rulers, many in authority, abuse that power. You don't put yourself under an abusive leader. And if we ever stop from preaching the gospel, of course we say no. Like Peter in Acts 5, we obey God, not men. But that's the exception. That The norm is that we are subject, we submit, we do the right thing. I was thinking if every Christian was known for obeying the law and speaking kindly about their leaders, I wonder whether we would shine like more stars. So a do-gooder is a good citizen. Number two, a do-gooder is a good neighbor. A good neighbor. I love what Martin Luther says. He says this, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. God doesn't need your good works. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need your good but your neighbor does. And that's why you're left here on earth, to be his hands and feet, to, to do good deeds to your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Everybody, anybody, everyone you mix with, everyone in your family, your friends, those who have hurt you, those who have wronged you, those who are kind to you, those that you work with, those that you pass on the street, do good deeds. And verse 2 is very confronting. He says, slander no one, be peaceable, be considerate, and always be gentle towards everyone. And there's no wriggle room. It's all-encompassing always to everyone. So he's not just talking about the way that you relate to authorities. He's now talking to everybody. The way you relate to your family, your friends, your communities, your enemies, your behavior, your attitudes. But these verses are really about your tongue, the way that you speak. I've said it before. This tongue is, it has such power. Your tongue has power way, way, way beyond its size. Your words can, can be used for bad or for good, for harm or for healing. It's been said that your tongue is the only edged tool that grows sharper with misuse. 
So think about the impact of your words. Be good with your tongue. Verse 2, slander no one. Don't you wish that no one wasn't there? Slander some people. Slander those who have wronged me. Slander that person who hurt me. No, slander no one. The word for slander there is to speak evil about, to put someone down, to malign them, to disrespect them, to attack their character, to speak lies, to speak half-truths. And I wonder whether slander is kind of the, the acceptable sin in church. We just love to use our, our, our words to verbally attack somebody who's wronged us. So what do you do when someone's hurt you? What do you do when someone has harmed you or frustrated you or failed you? Well, you don't gather a crowd to give your side of the argument. You don't put them down with your words. You don't make that passing comment that attacks their character. If you've got nothing good to say about them, then we'll say nothing at all. The opposite of slander is encourage, is compliment. As people made in the image of God, there's always something good you can say about somebody. I have to say that social media, I think, has been a hotbed for slander. Endless threads of comments. And we, we feel this permission to, to say things about people that we would never say to their face. Please think before you speak negatively about anybody. Slander no one. Verse 2, be peaceable. Pursue peace. That's the, that's the sense there. Seek peace. Go out of your way to pursue reconciliation, to pursue forgiveness, to pursue peace. The King James Version says, don't be a fighter, don't quarrel, don't argue, don't use your words to inflame. But we're good at that, aren't we? We use our words, but rather than to, to bring healing, we use our words to inflame the harm. To be peaceable means that you're going to be quick to forgive. You'll be slow to anger. You're going to get rid of your grudges, get rid of your hurts. Don't be a fighter with your words. The only place to fight is in prayer. Have a war room with God. Talk to God. But please, if someone has wronged you, if someone has hurt you, you pursue peace. That is hard. Trust me, I, I know. But forgiveness is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So you slander no one, you pursue peace. Love the next word, you're considerate. The word there is courteous, is thoughtful. So the do-good is a person who always thinks What's going to be best for them? What's going to be good for them? How can I help them? Will these words build them up? Will these words be comforting to them? Will these words I'm about to speak be edifying to them? It's so other person-centered to be considered. What are their needs? Not, not what about me, but what about them? Look to humility in Philippians 2. In humility, value others above yourselves. Not look into your own interests, but to the interests of other people. It's a beautiful trait where you, you think, it's not about me, but what could I do 
or say to them that will be thoughtful and kind and considerate. So we slander no one. We pursue peace. We're thoughtful and considerate. And this is the clincher. Always to be gentle towards everyone. Always to be gentle towards everyone. And and gentleness is this beautiful, beautiful characteristic. I don't know whether you have ever held a newborn baby. If you hold a newborn baby, they are so fragile that you're just gentle with them. Or you hold a, a raw egg. And you know, if you're a bit too tough, a bit too harsh, it's going to be disastrous. That's the attitude of being gentle, is that you are kind, you're caring, you're sensitive. I don't know whether you ever see people as being fragile. See people as being precious, made in the image of God. Because church, the damage done by harsh, tough, unkind, hostile words. It leaves brokenness, bruising, hurt and harm. But when you're gentle, you heal, you build up, you you, you care for people with your words. And it's fascinating that, that Jesus Christ himself, just once he revealed his heart, he said in Matthew 11, he said, I am, I am gentle and humble in heart. That, that's the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope you realize that, that Jesus is not harsh with you. He wasn't tough with you. He didn't berate you. He was so gentle with you. He was kind. He was compassionate. And if Jesus does that to you, and we're called to be his hands and feet. Shouldn't we be that to other people? It just breaks my heart that, that all these people out there have experienced not gentleness, but harshness. Not, not kind words, but cruel words. Not encouragement, but slander. And then we wonder why we don't make the, the goodness of grace more attractive. It's not hard to do, be a do-gooder. We just control our tongue. I had the privilege on Friday night of going out with a good friend of mine, and as I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking, who is like this? I'm like, yeah, he's like this. I've known him for 30 years. And yeah, he's been deeply wronged by people, but he doesn't slander. And yes, there's been broken relations, but he's always pursued peace. And he's so considered, he, he's always thinking what is good for other people, what is good for Paul, not what's good for me. He's always kind with his words. And, and, and you know what? I came home Friday night and, and I was full of the joy of the Lord. Why? Because spending time with those kinds of people is beautiful, isn't it? Don't you want to be known as these people who are, who are do-gooders, who are beautiful people with your words? Can you imagine this kind of life? That... You're known as somebody who does the right thing, thing and obeys the law. And you know as, as a person who, whoever comes across your path, you encourage and you pursue peace and you're thoughtful and you're gentle. Is that a negative way to live? 
For me, that's beautiful. I don't know whether you ever think about your gravestone, what words you want on your gravestone. Paul Dale, 1972, who knows when. But I was thinking this week, he did no harm, he did good, and he stayed in love with God. That's pretty good, isn't it? Paul Dale, he did no harm, he did good, and he stayed in love with God. Or maybe just Paul Dale, a do-gooder that flowed from grace. A do-gooder that flowed from grace. Let me pray. This is a quote from John Wesley. I'll pray it over us. The Bridge Church, may we do all the good that we can by all the means that we can, in all the ways that we can, in all the places that we can, at all the times that we can, to all the people that we can, as long as we ever can. So, Father, please make us a people who do good, who choose to obey, who choose to submit, who choose to slander no one, who choose to pursue peace, who choose to be considerate, who choose to to always be gentle towards everyone. May people see Christ in us. We ask that for Jesus' sake.